Thank you to everyone who is helping us with our transcripts. You're doing a great job helping us make sure they are published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out with publishing, just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com. That's H-E-Y or H-E-J. UX Podcast Episode 263. I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 199 countries and territories in the world from Portugal to Sweden. On May the 19th, 2011, pretty much exactly 10 years ago, we published the pilot episode of UX Podcast. And since then, we've published 262 episodes. Well, including this one, it's 263, which if you wanted to, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you do, this would take you <laughs> almost an entire week without sleeping to listen to. We've interviewed over 130 guests, one of which back in 2016 was uh, Don Norman. And now Don Norman is perhaps still most famous in the UX space for his book, uh, The Design of Everyday Things. But he has, of course, written many more, both before and since. He has lived multiple lives. University professor, industry executive, consultant, keynote speaker, and, of course, author. And he's also been an electrical engineer, a psychologist, cognitive scientist, computer scientist, and, yes, designer. He is the co-founder of the Nielsen Norman Group and founding director of the Design Lab at University of California, San Diego. And we thought it was a pretty good way to celebrate 10 years by getting Don back on the show again for another conversation. And I think what piqued our interest this time was uh, an essay on LinkedIn uh, to create a better society that he published in uh, November last year. Mm. And you yeah. tried to get in touch with him. Yeah, I'm interesting. The, the essay, um, in that he talks about um, people, business, technology exactly and society <laughs> and yeah. and after that we did actually twist or tweak our intro that we use sometimes when we mention business technology um, we used to say users and we changed to people um, and um, now we've added society to it as well mm. um, but yeah I, I tried getting in touch again with Don back in November after being inspired by the article to ask him if he'd like to join us and and I got a yes but you have to wait three months, mm. was the reply. And with some people, when they say that, it's like, okay, so they're just they're pushing it ahead, and you never know what's going to happen. But you got you added it to your calendar, and you got in touch. I think at exactly three months after that, <laughs> I did. But it, to be fair, what Don was the reason why Don said wait three months is he was retiring for the third time. Um, <laughs> yes, at the end of November, and I contacted him pretty much at the end of November. Mm. Um, so he was having a, he was having a break um, before coming out of retirement for the mm. fourth time. Um, so thankfully, he um, he he did reply um, and said, "Yep, sure, let's do it." So we recorded another two-part interview with him, and this time around, uh, as it turns out, design education because he he's on a mission to reinvent it. 
And the fun thing I realized when I was doing research now, just as we were about to record, I, th I thought these were new ideas or somewhat new ideas. And then I found articles dating back to 2010 where he was actually describing his intent with, with uh, changing design education. And I think this is, this is kind of interesting from a scale point of view. It's like when you're, um, when you're 85 and have been working in design as long as Don Norman has, then 10, 11, 12 years, that's actually just a, that's kind of a reasonably short time to reflect when you consider the length of your career. Yes, definitely. Uh, and heads up, this is uh, part one of a two-parter. Just as last time when we interviewed Don, uh, we spoke for almost an hour and uh, we, we decided to split this into two, a two-part episode because we want it all. So, Don, you've been teaching designers for many, many decades and, and you've been an inspiration to hundreds of thousands of designers all over the world. And now you're on a mission to rethink the education of designers. So what made you embark on this mission? Well, there are two different issues. One of them is that <clears throat> traditional design training comes from art schools, art and, and architecture schools. And that's not appropriate for design. Design is not art. Design is doing something for other people to make their lives easier, to make society better. That's not what art is about. Art is very important. I love art. I buy art. I patronize art. But it's different than design. But so many people equate design and art. They're not. They're different. So moreover, the world is changing. And we think of design as a way of thinking, of approaching almost any issue you'd like to address. Uh, you, Company's organization, a company's mission, the reason for a company, how it performs, uh, or other organizations, or uh, looking at the United Nations list of 17 major societal issues like hunger and education and healthcare. Uh, designers actually could play a major role, but designers can't. They're not trained. A, a few do, but on the whole, they're not trained well. And in fact, the ones who often do the best are people who are designers actually like me, but I was never trained as a designer. I was trained in a more broad, broadly based educational system and as an engineer, and then eventually as a psychologist. But having all these wide areas of knowledge is what's essential for the modern world. Because design is not a specialty. I mean, it's, there's no content in design. It's a method. And that method is very powerful. But when we wish to apply it someplace, we have to work with other disciplines. And so designers don't know much about any discipline. And that's a virtue. That's not a bad thing. Because by not knowing much, you find the experts and you bring them together, but then you try to make use of them in a way that they're not used to. Specialists are always specialists. And engineers talk to engineers. And worse than that, uh, computer science engineers only talk to other computer scientists. And worse than that, the people who program operating systems only talk to people who program operating systems and not the people who program the interface, et cetera, et cetera. But designers can cut across all that. In addition, as I say, we, since we don't know anything, we have to learn quickly. And when learning quickly, we ask questions, and many of which people say, well, that's a stupid question. Stupid question is the most powerful question. Because quite often it's asking something that everybody knows that. 
And you say, but why is that? Well, we've always done it that way. And as soon as they say, we've always done it that way, you know you've hit pay dirt. Well, why do you have to do it that way? Isn't there some other way? So design is a very powerful method, but most designers, they don't understand business and they often hate business, even though they work. And there's another one. In 1971, Victor Papanek, a very well-known industrial designer at the time, wrote a book called Design for the Real World. But the very first sentence in that book was actually in the preface, so it was even before he got to the text. The very first sentence was, there is no field more dangerous than design. Why is that? Well, because designers build all that crap that people go out and buy, whether they need it or not, and it's destroying the environment. And um, he was wrong. He was right, but he was wrong. He's right about the fact that designers today create a lot of crap, but he was wrong assuming that it was the designer's fault because designers are at a middle level. If you are a, pra a practicing designer, uh, you either have a small consultancy that you run or work in, or if you work for a company, you're in the middle levels of the company. It is very rare to find a designer who's at the decision-making level, who decides what the company should do in the first place and how it should do it. So designers have almost no voice. And if you're in a university, the design department is seldom the most prestigious department within the university. Same thing. Well, we, why not change all that? We, we, have, we have great abilities, great power. So that's the first step. And that's why we've launched this big major program with over 700 people volunteering to help to try to refine how we educate designers in a more broadly based way. But there's more. And actually a secondary thing is of course technology and, and requirements are changing very rapidly. But there's the other thing is that there's a big concern in the world about the way that the, the colonizing nations of the world, which are mostly European, um, and, uh, and I include actually the United States as one of those European nations, have gone around the world and sort of taken over and tell people that you, have, you must behave the way we behave. And uh, we'll, in fact, we'll help you, we'll help you, we'll do it for you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, if you actually even look at the early exploration of the world by mostly European nations, you would, you know, Columbus came to and discovered America and said, oh, it's empty territory, we can take over. And no, it isn't. There were lots of people living here. But the same is true with every place in the world where new people came, is there already were established people, civilizations, but they got destroyed. In fact, in the United States, it happened because we called the indigenous people, we called them savages. So they weren't really people. So we could push them away or kill them or enslave them. Um, and it, this has been a major problem. And it's also the same with design. Uh, the way that we design is a European way. And the way that I've been teaching people to design is wonderful for incremental improvements of mass-produced items where we expect the same thing to be used all around the world. But yes, as we move to other kinds of manufacturing, especially the new methods of manufacturing, you can do smaller, in fact, even individual lots. Why should that be necessary? 
Um, if you want to solve societal issues, why is it that you need to send out the anthropologists and do design research to find out the people's issues and how they live? There are lots of clever, intelligent people in those places that already know their problems. They don't have to send out anthropologists to tell them what their issues are. Why not, instead of us going in and saying, oh, we've got to study what you're doing, and here's what your problem is, and here's the solution, that's, that's colonization. What we ought to do is find the people who have the issues and then say, Let, uh, oh, um, maybe could, we could help you a little bit. Because one of the issues is that um, even if you live in a society, let's say you have infection, you have diseases. Well, you try to attack them. But first of all, attack disease requires a fair amount of medical assistance. It should come from the country, but it requires more than what individuals can do. But second of all, if you attack the disease, the disease will come back. And I'll give an example, but I'll give an example not from some foreign country. I'll give an example in the United States, in San Diego, in the city in which I live, one of the largest cities in the United States, eighth largest to be exact. Um, we have epidemics. And so we send in the medical people. San Diego is a medical town. We have lots of really good hospitals and medical people. But that's not the problem. Yeah, we have to cure the diseases, but it's why, why do we have the, the hepatitis epidemics? Well, it's caused by bad sanitation. Oh, so we send in the educators to explain to people how they, what good sanitation is. Well, maybe, but why don't we have good sanitation? Well, there are no sanitary facilities once you're out of your home, et cetera, et cetera. We, we should build them, we should make them available. But uh, come to think of it, the major issue is we have a lot of homeless. They don't have a home. And so if you want to attack the medical problem, you have to solve the homelessness problem. Now, that's a really difficult problem to solve. And the average person, even though they, they may, may recognize that, they are incapable of solving. Because there you must harness together not only many different disciplines, because it's an economic issue, it's a political issue, it's a construction issue. It's a, well, yes, we should build homes for the homeless, but not where I live, thank you very much. It's, it's called the NIMBY, not in my backyard phenomenon. Uh, so it, it actually, in the end, becomes a political issue. And designers say, well, I'm not a politician. I'm a designer. And I say, you want to solve the issue? You have to become a politician. And I think that's where designers uh, maybe struggle a bit uh, in, in that you argue that designers now need to learn about people and society. They need to understand tech impact for good and bad, economics and commerce, political forces, power and privilege, uh, the colonization issues that you talked about. It seems almost Herculean. I mean, can we do all this? Well, let me point out that this doesn't mean that every designer must master all of these topics. It's the design profession and usually um, you know, it's, we train people in universities to work all by themselves, and we, that's how we grade people when they do their final project all by themselves, but that's not how the world works. Uh, almost every, all design is being done by teams, and they could be small teams, but, you know, if you work for a large company and you're working, I, I was at Philips uh, looking at their healthcare. They've now switched the company, so it's mostly healthcare. And Philips, by the way, is quite unique they do have a chief design officer, a C-suite officer, who reports to the CEO and is 
and I believe meet with the CEO like every week. And, and they have actually decided, they'll, they'll tell the company, hey, we discovered a new opportunity. Here's a new way of doing this. And they are changing things. But their team might be 20, 50, or even 100 people. And so what's important is that team is representative and has people with the different skills. And maybe even people with different training. Not The design team doesn't have to have all people trained in design. They do have to understand design because they have to all communicate with each other and support each other. But they don't have to be sophisticated designers because they could bring their knowledge about political or economics or healthcare or manufacturing or materials to bear to put together the products. So that's why it's a possible uh, issue. It's not because everybody must know all these things. Mm. So it's a co-creation effort. It, 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 it's it's, it's co-design, co-creation, but with a difference because a lot of the co-design work and actually a lot of the co-design philosophies came from Scandinavia, um, um, is, is still the designers are in charge. Yeah, co-design means we bring in the people we're designing for, we listen to them and they have feedback, but the, the designers are in charge. And I say, no, let's make it the other way, that the people are in charge and we are their assistants or mentors or facilitators. Can we do this? Um, can we achieve this um, by being open, um, openly labeled as designers? Or is it something that we have to be more covert in our operations that we become educated as designers and, and understand all these different disciplines, but maybe don't broadcast ourselves as designers. The reason for asking that is because I think we get a lot of pushback at times when we're seen as designers and that we, we come from our view and we, we, we own all these processes and all these kind of ways of thinking and everyone else is, in, is somewhere else that we, they need to adopt our ways of working. Well, yeah, the word design is a peculiar word and it has many, many different meanings and it's not even clear that <laughs> many people agree on common meanings because design is changing. Um, but I think, I, but, and so a lot of us have tried actually to find better terms, another, another name, but actually in the end we come back to design. So it's a new concept design and I don't think it ought to, be, what we're trying to do has to be public because if we try to disguise it or hide it or not talk about it, we're, we're not being truthful. So I think, but um, it is a new way of thinking. But look, there's, there's a trend today. The hot topic has been for some time design thinking. And we have all these little courses on design thinking and you can take it for a, a few hours or a weekend or, or maybe even a few weeks. And people end up saying, see, I'm a design thinker. I'm a designer. Why do I need the other designers, you know, you people? Well, the, the design thinking courses have some benefits in that they actually do introduce the concept of design. But I, I always tell people it's like, some of my friends get angry with me when I say everybody's a designer. Um, no, they're not professional designers and they, it's a mistake to make them think they are. And I say, well, uh, lots of people where I live are tennis players. And they may have taken tennis lessons for a couple of weeks or maybe even a year or two. But they don't pretend that they are professionals. They don't pretend that they're nearly as good. And I don't see why design couldn't be the same way. That sure, we should teach design. I think design is a way of thinking ought to be taught in the university to everybody. 
going to be required, just like uh, literature is required, or writing skills are required, or computing skills are required, or basic mathematics is required. Because I believe that if you understand these basic skills, first of all, you'll be better. The second of all, you will appreciate better the power of trained professional designers. That's my hope. Mm. We'll see whether that's possible. You're also arguing that designers need to be fast learners. I think that's probably the key when you're introduced to so many different topic areas. But that's already true yeah. today. So that's not a new, that's actually one of the virtues of designers. Because if you work in a design studio or wherever, you know, you, you get completely different projects all the time. Oh, I'm doing an airplane, <laughs> the interior or something. And now I'm doing a medical yeah. device and now I'm doing a home product. And so it, that's always been mm -hmm. true. Then I would argue that humility is one of the most powerful ones because, as you're saying, you have to immerse yourself with, within a new culture or with new people and help them actually do the work. As you're saying, they should be the designers and we should be the assistants in the methodology. I think, though, that that's often a good trait for everybody. <laughs> That's a very good response. I can see uh, it's an interesting conversation because um, here's, this is a conversation where it's harder for you than for me because I've been thinking about this for a long time and so out spits a five-minute, you know, <laughs> and then you're sitting there saying, ooh, what's the next question? <laughs> well, things go so much. Reading through the essay, um, before we taught you today, I mean, there is just so many different points to go to, and you almost get, I, I can understand and appreciate what you're saying, Don, because from the essay, I can see how much you have been thinking about so many aspects of it over such a long period of time. As I, I said to Per beforehand, I mean, we could actually talk all day about the points in this essay, because it, it, it opens up so many different um, topics that we could explore and could get into. Um, one, one particular part, um, I was starting to think about, well, if you, if you do succeed in changing to rethinking education and the education designers, and we've now, they've graduated, they've come out of this brave new world of, of design education. How are they going to be feel or how are we going to cope with their onboarding into the real world after that point? I think there's going to be a gradual process. First of all, it's, We've been at this, this initiative for a little over a year now. Um, we started in February of 2020. Um, second, it will be another year or two years before we're finished. And third, if you take a look at other fields that have launched similar initiatives, like the business schools, uh, like medicine, like journalism, uh, law, it then takes a decade before the business existing schools understand and start adopting and changing what they're doing. And I think that's, that, yeah, it might be another decade for us too. And so what that does though, is it means that the new, the new kinds of educated designers are going to come out slowly. And there's a fair amount of time for society to adapt and for, for organizations, uh, both companies and also uh, government organizations and actually thirdly non-government organizations to say oh this is really somebody we should be using or skills we should be using 
so that uh, it's not going to happen overnight is the point. And I think the, the kind of concerns that you have are real, but they also assume that suddenly a new per group of people come out that nobody understands and what, how does that work? I think it'll happen slowly, which allows for adjustment to occur. I think that's. I think that comes into one. Well, further further concerns about it is that the the incentive mechanisms and the 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 way in which society works that that's the thing that doesn't need. That's going to take time to change because you know these non-government organisations and governments themselves, or even businesses, they're still going to be stuck in the way of working and thinking from 10 years before. That's, that's very true um, because, um, well, the government often has this issue because the, uh, the people who run the government tend to be older, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, some places 90s, and um, they remain in power for a long time. And the younger generation, younger in fact today could mean 50 or 60, who would like to make changes, they, it takes them a while before they're in a position to do that. And then uh, there is a bunch of issues about the nature of our economic systems and our manufacturing systems and business systems and governments that also make it very, very difficult to make changes. Um, in fact, if a government is a, is a democracy or, you know, there are many different forms of democracies, but uh, those are the hardest of all to change because there are very many people who are objecting and, and very conservative. And I can see that in the United States right now. It's very hard to make the changes that many people would like to see made. And um, the, the, country, the, the countries that have it easiest are the ones run by dictators or ones that are monoliths. And so, um, China is an example is that they can make changes much more rapidly than we can. But even so, they have problems too. Yes, they would like to get rid of pollution, but and they are they they are one of the fastest growing places of, re, you know, replaceable energy sources and non-polluting energy sources. At the same time, they're one of the greatest polluters with coal-burning plants because it's it's a major nation with three billion people and it is. Uh, you can't change it overnight. And because of the complexity, Don, it doesn't vanish just because they're a dictatorship. The, the world is still a complex place. The world China. is indeed a very complex place. And um, yeah, so a lot of these issues are simply going to take a very long time and, and they may get modified as they get applied. And, they, and I have a feeling modification is necessary because it's easy to step back and to say, well, here's what we must change. But, that, but, but you're thinking it through. And one thing we learn as designers is that you can have lots of great ideas on paper, but when you build it and try it out, it's not right. So a lot of what we say should be done is probably not the right, right way. And so we're going to have to do a lot of experimentation. Um, and our problem is that the, the world's public doesn't understand experimentation. Because... Mm. We, we experiment, and when something isn't correct, we change it and we modify it. We, that's a, one of the tools we use. But to the public, if we do something and it isn't correct, you failed. Why are we listening to you? So that's a very difficult issue. Actually, I have a solution before you... let me go on. <laughs> I think I have a yeah. solution. It's actually an old one that comes from political science. And, uh, that is, it's incrementalism. 
do not try to change the entire world at once, but find some very small, simple place where you can make a difference and change. Because if it's relatively small, you're not going to get much opposition in trying it. If it's relatively small, if it fails, it's not a big deal. Uh, and if it succeeds, well, it's also not a big deal, but you've succeeded, which it makes it easier to do the next step and the next step. On top of that, by not trying to change everything at once, where you do that, so massive foreign aid programs, or even in a, in a country itself, is, you know, you, it launches $10 billion program or 20 or 30 billion, it's gonna take a decade. People, it's a lot of money. And so people say, well, there are other things we should be spending the money on. And on top of that, you need strong political support, but it's gonna take 20 years, maybe. And politics changes, the, the prime minister changes, the president changes, and Congress changes, the representatives change. And so the next one says, well, why are we doing that? And then why are we doing that? And so it's very difficult. But if you do small steps, it's much, I believe it's easier. There's a classic paper called Muddling Through by a political scientist called Lindlum that talks about that. And that's the paper that I've been following. Does that then, though, Don, does that um, increase the, well, not increase necessarily, but um, if we're making small incremental changes as part of a journey to bigger change, ultimately, then that puts a burden on us, a requirement on us to um, communicate the results of those incremental changes so that we're passing on the, the, the knowledge from our small experiments to others so they can improve them in, in other aspects There's of There's an example uh, in a different field, but in um, traffic control. In the Netherlands, there was a traffic engineer. I've forgotten his name right at the moment. Unfortunately, he's now dead. But um, the uh, what he said was, I'm going to make the streets safer and make it easier to get through a town. And I'm going to do that by taking away all the traffic lights and all the pedestrian crossings. And I'm going to make the streets more narrow. I'm going to make it look more dangerous. And I'm not going to have traffic lights. I'm going to have roundabouts, circles. And you may have known, about, you may know about this work. Yeah. And it has been quite successful and it's been copied in other places. It doesn't work in every environment, but it has been very successful where it's been tried. And, and, that, and the traffic engineers of the world all know about these studies. And so a lot of them are it's being applied slowly around the world. Um, people hate traffic circles because you get, they think it's dangerous. And that's a good thing. Because if you think it's dangerous, you're very careful. And so what happens is people drive more slowly through the town, but they get through it faster because there are no traffic lights. They don't have to stop, which is also more energy efficient. And if energy efficient for two reasons, they're going more slowly and second, because you waste a tremendous amount of energy when you have to stop. And then when you have to accelerate again to get going. So, but that's an example of, of incrementalism that is slowly catching on in places where it's appropriate. Hmm. You said something really interesting there. It doesn't work everywhere. And to me, that is an example of, of a fallacy of designers that we often believe that, yeah, I worked on this project and we designed it this way. And it worked great, so we're going to apply that over here as well. And we're not—we don't even have to test it because I know it works. There's a wonderful book which I learned from called *The Tyranny of Experts* by a man named Easterly. 
in which he said the problem with experts is they go into a community and they, they actually they're colonizing because they go into the community and they study it and then they come back and they say here's what your problem is and here's a solution and it's again these massive very expensive things but one of the problems is that they are experts they do understand the problem they do understand the solution but they don't understand the people and what's unique about this location and so they're trying to apply the same solution all across the world. And that's exactly the point you were making, that no, you have to take into account the local conditions, the culture, the people, what their capabilities are, what their resources are. And history too, I guess, because they might have been, they might have had experiences previously that will um, colour or um, affect their, their acceptance or understanding of a, of a design Absolutely, that's, I, I would include that as part of the culture, but yes. So that concludes part one of our two-part episode with Don Norman and uh, coming up and uh, things to look forward to in episode two or part two are things like uh, we talk about, start talking about responsibilities, uh, accountability as designers, uh, about leadership and how we convince leaders or make things into their best interest. Uh, we talk a bit about Facebook. Uh, we get into externalities, which you love, James. I did. <laughs> And we talk about ethics, we talk about systems, so it's, it's tying everything together in a fantastic way. We even talk about political systems. Yes, exactly. And if you're listening to this, though, before episode 264, part two of our interview, is out, then we recommend that you go back and listen to our previous interview we've done, which was episode 125, Design Doing. Otherwise, move right on to episode 265. Part two of our latest conversation with Don Norman. Show notes, including the links mentioned in this episode and a full transcript can be found on uxpodcast.com and perhaps even where you are listening right now. So click follow, subscribe or add whatever the button says if you aren't doing so already and joining us again for part two of our Don Norman interview. And if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Why did the dolphins elect a dictator? I don't know, James. Why did the dolphins elect a dictator? Because they wanted to serve a greater porpoise. <laughs> I love how you said porpoise. <laughs> You've got to kind of say it like halfway between two, yeah. but yes. I mean... It's that kind of joke. I, I wouldn't have got it otherwise, so you're right, but it was funny. <laughs> <laughs>